Hello and welcome, friends, to this week's edition of Sustainability Now with me, Justin Mogg, here on your community radio station. We're 106.5 FM Forward Radio, broadcasting from the top of the historic Hayburn Building here in downtown Louisville at 106.5 FM. And uh, we live stream to the world at forwardradio.org. So you can pick us up if you're maybe a Peace Corps volunteer in Tanzania. Hey, what am I forward promoting my own show here? Yes, I am. We're gonna we're gonna talk about the Peace Corps once again here on for sustainability now. We've just launched a new series of interviews with returned Peace Corps volunteers from around the Commonwealth of Kentucky, and we're kind of moving chronologically. So we recently heard from our friends who served in the first decade of the Peace Corps back in the 60s. We're going to we're gonna move it up towards the most recent <laughs> decade. And I've got in the virtual studio with me from Lexington today, Jessica Bicey is joining us. And she's originally from Clinton, Kentucky, out in Hickman County. And she served in the Peace Corps in Tanzania from 2010 to 13 as an environment volunteer in a village. And then, like me, she decided she loved this job so much, the toughest job you'll ever love, that she extended (laughs) as a third-year volunteer, uh, as a health volunteer with RTI International for a malaria research project. So we're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about how both Jessica and I served as a little bit more like mid-career volunteers. Uh, I went down in 2005 as a 30-year-old, just like you did. Um, I served with my wife, though. So we were a team, and we served in Paraguay and did our first two years in a village. Uh, I was a crop extension volunteer. My wife was an environmental education volunteer. And like I said, we loved it so much, we decided to extend our service, which is an option available to some volunteers who can sort of make the case the way it worked in Paraguay. I imagine it worked globally is you kind of have to come up with your own sort of internship-ish kind of thing with an existing uh, host agency. And it sounds like you did that as well. Uh, Amanda and I sort of interned with an organization called Plan International, which is one of these adopt-a-child type charities. Uh, You've seen them on late night TV or wherever where they're saying, you know, you know, help this poor child out. And what really amazed me about that is that it's it's actually true. There is an actual child with that actual name and <laughs> they actually get the letters from the sponsors, you know, from Germany or whatever. This is more common in Europe, actually, uh, the donors to, uh-huh. to come from there. And they actually transport these letters and soccer balls and all these things out to these remote places. And that was part of the most frustrating thing about it was how much energy went into just that piece of it. Right? But they did some great work with the communities too. So anyway, we're going to talk about extending our service and all of that, but let's start at the beginning with you, Jessica. In in 2010, what made you want to join yeah. the Peace Corps as someone who was, you know, already mid-career? Yeah, well, I had actually looked into the Peace Corps a few years prior and was really interested in going through the process. I have always enjoyed traveling, but had never been outside the country. And so I really wanted to experience what Peace Corps had to offer, but then, you know, just kind of different things, kind of let my family talk me out of it. And, um, <laughs> you know, that oh, kind no, of, you, you know, that. they're just concerned for the, for the best, but it was always something that stuck in my head as something I would do in the future, you know, possibly after retirement, but, um, over the years, especially facing 30, you know, those like, I guess, quarter life crises or something. So it was thinking about, <laughs> um, 
you know, what I needed to do to get my life on track to where I wanted it to go. And, and also realizing how fast time goes, you know, that who knows by the time I reached retirement age and had a lot more responsibilities at that point. So I just kind of woke up one morning and decided, you know, I may own a washer dryer, but I can sell it. <laughs> you know, I can get rid <laughs> of all it. those things that were, I thought were weighing me down and just go ahead and, and go through the process. And funny enough, I was initially looking back into it. And the thing that caught my attention there was more the business development side of Peace Corps in Eastern Europe. And uh, so I, whenever I told my family that time, I was like, oh, don't worry, they won't send me to Africa. I'll go to Eastern <laughs> Europe and, you know, work in business. And uh, of course, my agriculture background was perfect for Sub-Saharan Africa. Oh, yeah. And that's where they wanted to send me. What was your background? And, you know, um, my undergrad is agriculture communications. Oh, so okay. I had that and I grew up on a farm in Western Kentucky. So was always involved riding horses and helping out with with the crops and, and different things around the farm. So um, it just made sense. And and by that time, I was so gung-ho, like I'm going this time. So it just wasn't <laughs> even a deterrent for me. And to be honest, I could not imagine having had the the amazing experience that I had in Tanzania anywhere else. So oh, wow. it yeah. all works out. Yeah. And the other thing, I imagine you did some business development work in, in the context of agriculture, right? That's the thing exactly. about these volunteer positions with the Peace Corps is, you, uh, to me, it's really about being a good problem solver for the community you're in. Uh, yeah. And that community, of course, is facing all kinds of challenges. And so it's never yeah. just the one thing. Uh, no. Anyone with a, an educated background who's yeah. some life experiences, you know, all of us have so much to offer these communities, uh, mm -hmm. not, not in a white savior kind of way at all. No. That's not what I'm trying to say. I'm no. trying to say that uh, there is so much change needed out there and we can be change agents uh, just by coming in as outsiders yeah. in a sensitive way, right? Respectful of yeah. local cultures and traditions and timelines. Mm. That's the hardest thing about yeah. we, we want change now. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and it's so slow. <laughs> it is. That was one of the things I really struggled with in the beginning was, you know, coming from where I had just about every day lying down on my calendar right. to just... You What's know, the calendar? first three months that you're put in the village, <laughs> your main job is to just get out of the house yeah. and go sit at the market and have a chat with, you know, the, the mamas, the women that are selling the vegetables and yep. talking and eating with your neighbors. Yep. And that was that was hard for me. So um, I still tried to do all that, but I actually got involved pretty early teaching an environment kind of conservation class in the primary school that helped me. And you know, I always felt like I was being able to have something to do with my hands, Yeah. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Like even whenever I visited with my neighbors, I loved whenever they were shucking corn. So I could just sit down and shut corn and not have that pressure to use my Swahili quite as perfectly <laughs> because, you know, I, I'll be honest, I struggled with the language yeah. and, but you know, the thing I think so much about international travel is just, the people are accepting of you if you just try and you just Absolutely. have to be 
willing to say the wrong thing and be <laughs> laughed at, laugh at yourself. Laughter is um, so good. <laughs> that all works out. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So uh, yeah. part of my mission in doing these series of interviews is to work yeah. on what we referred to when I was talking with Angie and Jack recently about the third goal of yeah. Peace Corps, which is to sort of bring these cultures and experiences and understanding of other yeah. nations back to the people here in the United States. So let's do that. Tell us about yes. Tanzania. I'm sure most of us only think about it in maybe like a safari sense. Yeah. Tell us about this nation, its history, yeah. its people. Uh, what are some things that you really think Americans should know about Tanzania? Yeah, Tanzania, in general, the people are so welcoming. You know, whenever you are placed in a village, that village wants you there. That's one of the things with Peace Corps, too, that, that people should understand is that we're not just looking at the map and selecting a village to go into. That village has applied for a volunteer and is right. providing housing. And they really take ownership over the volunteer that comes to them and wants you to have a great experience. And, you know, one of the things I think that surprised me, I think, in the beginning was their communication style is, you know, like in America, especially you're wanting to be short and to the point right. and just <laughs> move on to the next thing. Yeah. And Down what's funny is, you know, you'll be walking <laughs> along a path and you'll you'll come across someone and you'll go through at least half a dozen different questions <laughs> in that greeting process. You know, they'll ask about your home, your yeah. work you know, your breakfast, they'll ask you what you had to eat. Yep. <laughs> you know, they want to know all of that information and it's sincere. Yeah. You know, they really do care. And, you know, and they do that with, with each other too. It's not just because I was the foreigner coming in. Yeah. What about yeah. sort of the landscape of this nation and how big is it and those kinds of things? Yeah. Gosh, I wish I could compare it to a state. I'm yeah. not even not really sure, but it's it's really huge. And it's <laughs> bigger than we got. <laughs> <laughs> you kind of think about the countries within Africa as being kind of basically similar, but even just within Tanzania, it's it's diverse as the United States is. Wow. Um, you've got the like very tropical, like beachy, dry area along the southeast corner. You've got very tropical area where I was kind of in the mountain area. Oh, wow. um, and I loved my village. So it was actually towards the bottom of a mountain. So we had a lot of lush vegetation um, from all the rainwater coming down. With it being so close to the equator, we are one of those countries where you don't necessarily have the four seasons. It's yeah. more dry <laughs> yeah. and rain. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I actually got to where I really enjoyed the rain season. You know, I'm not someone that usually does well without sun, but, uh -huh. and, and, you know, there would be sun at different times, but that rain season was just, it was refreshing. You know, that's when everything turned greener. Yeah. Yeah. I just, 
I loved it. And I was actually, so also my village was surrounded by a coffee plantation. Oh, so right. I had Tanzanian all coffee. these like beautiful coffee trees. Yeah. They're almost, a, I would compare them to um, the cherry blossoms that oh, bloom yeah. around DC. Whenever they bloom, they're just beautiful. And they have these red cherries on them that the coffee beans are inside. Oh, yeah. And so what, there was both smaller operations where some of the people who lived in the village had their own small crop. But then there was also on the outlying skirts of the village was a larger plantation that about two miles down the road, there was a bigger corporation that was owned by a German company that hired and employed all of these villagers to work in the fields. Now, have um, you ever seen any of that coffee in the United States? That 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 was the <laughs> neatest thing when I saw Paraguayan sugar from yeah. grown in Guarambare, which is the this town where we got our training in and lived for three months, yeah. and and our sort of strongest relationships were built in some ways with a family there. We saw their sugar on the grocery shelf at Value Market. I was like, whoa. <laughs> Isn't it? It just makes you feel so connected exactly. with with everything, the world, and you know the the produce that's coming up. <laughs> but I did see it in Paducah, of, you really? know, at a coffee shop at one time. There was uh, Tanzanian. I want to say it was Dewberry was the name, uh-huh. but I, I'm not sure. Yeah, it's, it's, hard it's been to a trace few years even. back, but I think they really do have a big expanse of how far the coffee goes out. Well, coffee and sugar too, but co- coffee is one of those products mm-hmm. that connects us to the tropics, uh, you know, that we are addicted to here. Can't imagine our lives without. Uh, yeah. And and yet uh, a long history of sort of injustice built in yeah. to the coffee industry and the growers themselves in the tropics not receiving fair wage, yeah. fair portion of that, the value of that yeah. coffee. So did, yeah. did you interact with that at all, the whole fair trade question while you were in Tanzania? I did not, but yeah. it has been something I consider when I, since I've been back, right. whenever I go to fair trade shops, because you, you know, was having traveled how cheap some of that sells yeah. in the country yeah. and how expensive it is here. Yeah. I always hesitate because I want to know, know how much of that's really going back. Um, Here's the other question I have for you. Did you encounter that you couldn't find any good coffee in Tanzania? It was all exported. <laughs> No, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So it was really sad because I was surrounded by all this co- these coffee trees, but I I don't actually drink coffee, oh. but I had um knew from my friends that were volunteers that it was mainly the instant coffee. But I think everybody got so used to that instant coffee that now they they crave it back in the states and you know, they can't find it anywhere. <laughs> but um, but it was fun. So I was pretty lucky, too, that this coffee plantation that I mentioned had a really nice hotel, restaurant, and swimming pool. So I could actually, you know, if I had felt like I put in a good working week or something, I could walk two miles. And, or, and actually, one of the things I loved about Tanzania was just being able to get a lifty. You know, you could be walking and flag down a car that was going by and that cool and hop in and it would just they drop you off and you felt completely safe doing mm-hmm. that and i think that's one of the things too that i've had people ask me or be concerned about my safety in the the, the travels i've done especially tanzania 
and I felt safer in those that village than I have yeah. anywhere in a lot of the cities in the U.S. So yeah. people really it's take really care not of a safety situation. Yeah. You know, there might be a little petty theft in the cities, but otherwise it was very safe. My guest today joining me from Lexington in the virtual studio is Jessica Bice. She was a Peace Corps volunteer in Tanzania from 2010 to 13. So she extended her service for a third year. And I definitely want to ask you about that part of your experience as well. Uh, we're doing a series of interviews with Peace Corps volunteers who served around the world and, you know, have some connections to Kentucky. And Jessica's actually a Kentucky native, too, from Clinton. So yeah. this is a great conversation we're having. Um, I, I want to ask, too about, you know, I know there's a lot of pastoralists in East Africa, but yeah. you were working on agriculture too. So like, are there two different populations? Yeah. So where my location was in the Southwest corner of the mountains, it was pretty much everybody had their own little plot of land that they worked. Okay. It was mainly cows themselves. Like if they had cows, there might be some corn being grown away yeah. from the house because a lot of it was interesting to see like there might be more homes close together, but then they would have a plot of land that they would walk to away from their home to, to farm. But there are the Maasai that is the pastoralist yeah. society that is more in the north side, kind of between Tanzania and Kenya. Yeah, okay. And I did see a little bit of more of them the third year. And, and that's something else to think about is, you know, the Swahili and English are, you know, the main languages, but within those, all the different villages, there's like, uh, I wish I knew the numbers off the top of my head at this point, but there's over a hundred different native really? languages being spoken wow. um, within those communities. So, you know, there's such diversity that you don't really expect. Yeah, no, I'm sure. Um, and are there horses in Tanzania? Because I saw that you did a whole month of the horse uh, in yeah. May in honor of Kentucky Derby while you were there. Tell us about that. Yeah, that was so much fun. So especially growing up with horses, that was something I missed a lot. There's not really any horses, especially in the area that I was in, uh -huh. um, because even though it was lush and, you know, a lot of vegetation, it wasn't necessarily grazing land. And especially with it being during the dry season, there just wasn't enough for them. And it would just be too expensive for them to be able to raise horses off grain or, or otherwise. So the, the thought of the horse was a little bit new to them or, you know, is not as familiar as some of the other animals. And it was so much fun. That was one of the things, you know, that my church back home in Clinton, First uh, United Methodist, had been interested in helping me in some way. And so whenever I got this idea, I sent it back and was like, you know, if you want to send me some different crafts that I can do, um, because that's something that you don't see a lot of, especially within the school, is creative Oh, really? Thinking, um, projects and um, arts. And so it was really fun to be able to have these different projects. I had one day a week for a month that I would go in and, and do um, different things. I was so amazed and impressed by the quantity of things that my friends back home sent me for this activity. I had like bolts of fabric, lots of different construction paper and colors and scissors. 
they even got on, I think it was probably the Oriental Trading Company and ordered these like two foot wide horses, like actually cut out horses um, and sent me. So everybody in the class had their own horse to sit in color (laughs) one day. Um, That was a blast. And there was also uh, where we, I drew a horse on a big sheet and all the kids traced their hand on a piece of fabric and glued it up on the sheet to fill in the horse and just fun things like that. Mm -hmm. Like it was, it was a really fun experience. Yeah. Horses were, I wish I'd been from Kentucky originally because horses were really common in Paraguay, actually. Uh, They they were used as transportation and draft animals. Mm -hmm. uh, And I I knew nothing about horses, so I learned a lot about them there. (laughs) And then I moved to, you know, the headquarters of horse country here in America. (laughs) Now, and I will say, I have to add, I had another great experience with horses was where a friend of mine who was another volunteer in my training class lived near a tea plantation oh, yeah. and there was a hotel there that had a couple of horses where tourists were able to ride a horse out through the plantation and so she was able to set that up for us and I was able to go visit one time and it was such a cool experience to see a different part of the country and to be able to ride when I hadn't rode in um, about a year till then. And, and it's so funny because I grew up rail racing, so I'm used to the Western uh-huh. saddle. And I get there and it's all English style. Yeah. And I had never done much on an English saddle. And we went out running across the <laughs> tea plantation <laughs> on this tiny little English saddle. I grew so much oh. more respect for <laughs> everyone that rides English style. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. Just one yeah. of many culture shocks, right? Right. <laughs> yeah, it really was. Definitely. Did you and exp- one I never would have expected to get in Tanzania. Yeah. <laughs> Did you experience more culture shock going there or coming back to the United States? Oh my gosh. I think it was probably very similar levels because okay. I I went over there and it was definitely like, especially the first nine weeks is our training process. And so one of the things I really like about Peace Corps is one, the, the length of it. So you're really getting yeah. to know the culture and invest in your community, but they also provide in-country training. So you are able to learn a good basis of language, but through that process during your nine week training, you're doing a homestay. And so I had a great family that loved to feed me and (laughs) I was really trying to adjust to the heat and, uh-huh. you know, a lot of the, the common foods there are starchy, starchy rice diet, yeah. and, and hot stews on top. And it it was a struggle. I actually, if the listeners could see, I, I'm pleasantly plump, but lost a lot of weight Did during you? those first few weeks where I just couldn't eat. It was the only time in my life where I just did not ever have an appetite, wow. but I quickly got over that and enjoyed a lot of the foods that they had to have. You know, I think... A lot of the things that I struggled with in the beginning were the things that I grew to really appreciate, you know, the the type of communication that goes on, the, the food, yeah. you know, and I think it was actually fun. Our training class had several people who extended that third year 
And I think out of those people, a lot of them were the ones that had struggled. Oh, yeah. But I think whenever you struggle in the beginning, you really grow to appreciate and fall in love with the country and the people um, uh-huh. a lot more. I don't want to say deeper because everybody had a very deep experience sure. and love for the country by the time they left. But it's just amazing with the Peace Corps experience. You know, you, you go over for two years and, and you know, your American style, you feel like, Oh, why two years? You know, I'm going to get over there, bang out a couple of projects and, <laughs> you know, be done, be able to rest the last year or so. But right. I really learned like being able to slow down, yes. gain people's trust and respect goes so far. And just the difference between my first year to my second year was amazing. Yeah. Well, and of course, we learn so much throughout the process, and a big way we learn is by failing. Yes. Every volunteer has some failures, and <laughs> it's important to be honest and upfront about them. So let's talk about yeah. one of yours, which was trying to start a women's group. Why didn't yeah. that work? <laughs> so whenever we first got to the village, one of the things, too, was that they gave us different activities that we can do with small groups of our neighbors to be able to learn about the village, you know, about their calendar for the year, when things happen, yeah. what's needed. And one of the things that came up was a women's group. And I was like, oh, that's pretty common within Peace Corps volunteers yep. of starting I worked women's with one, groups. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I loved it, the idea. So I got, you know, gung-ho. I'm not waiting around, you know, for another <laughs> couple of months. I'm going to get this started. And uh, started the group. And I noticed right away that there's, in my village, even though in the city you could get, you know, the regional hub of nearby, you could find just about any vegetable in mm. our region. The village itself market only had tomatoes, greens, oh, wow. onions. That was about it. So I really wanted to get them growing a couple more things. So I got them to agree to do carrots and green peppers. Uh-huh. And, you know, they, and I thought, oh, I'll just, you know, put forth the seeds myself, you know, so they can get this going. And they got things planted, but then it just all kind of fell away because, you know, I realized that it was really my ideas that I was pushing on them and there wasn't really investment. And these women, I realized, even though they lived in the same village, they may live far apart. And whenever, you know, you're not, you're walking everywhere that They may not know each other or trust each other. There may be actually distrust between certain people. So it really just fell apart. But, you know, I I learned the importance of anytime you're doing something where you have a beneficiary group, it's you've got to have that buy in. And it's really helped me now working in the nonprofit industry to know that you've got to stay in communication with with everyone and know that they're involved in in what the project is. Oh, yeah. There's so much you can do in your two short years, maybe three years. (laughs) There's so many possibilities that it just makes sense to narrow it down to what the community is most interested in doing rather than all your own great ideas. Um, Uh, Even if they would work, you know, it, it would make more sense to have it be community driven. 
movement. And that's, that's one of the things we struggle with as, as Peace Mm -hmm. Corps volunteers wanting, you know, wanting to, you know, make all these great ideas that are in our heads reality when, when it should be about helping the community and their needs and what they have identified as priorities. But we, we get that in training, you know, it's part of the training process, right. (laughs) To learn how to do that. So we're able to bounce back and, and make that a reality. We're doing interviews on sustainability now here with, uh, Kentucky Peace Corps volunteers, and I'm talking with Jessica Bicey from Lexington. She served in Peace Corps Tanzania from 2010 to 2013. Like me, she extended her service for an extra year, and that's what I'd like to talk about now. So you talk about this third year you volunteered with RTI International. I've never heard of it. Tell us what it is and the work you did on malaria research. Yeah, RTI stands for Research Triangle Institute, and they are based out of North Carolina. So I uh, just was really interested in being able to stay a third year and get a more professional experience because within Peace Corps Tanzania, differs between the countries, but in Tanzania, you really go through a village experience first, and then if you want to stay on a third year, you'll you can work with an NGO um, within a city right. experience, and so having worked professionally, you know, coming like we've talked about mid career, I really wanted to have that experience too, and so um, the malaria extendees were actually a pretty developed program because within Peace Corps, at least within Sub-Saharan Africa, they kind of have an overarching uh, malaria training. It's called the malaria boot camp. All the extendees who are staying on to do malaria projects come together um, for a two-week training in Senegal. So that was a kind of a crazy experience. Our wow. first time leaving Tanzania yeah. after two years the other side was of the to continent. go to Senegal. Wow. Um, there was two other volunteers that um, were doing it with me. And um, so we're not only doing our work with the NGO, but we're also doing malaria trainings with the active um, Peace Corps volunteers and their counterparts. So we would do those, um, did about three or four of those throughout the year uh, and in different parts of the country. Because one of the things that we learned about is malaria tends to be over um, diagnosed in a lot of these areas. And so sometimes people will get a cold and they'll automatically tell them that they've got malaria. And they don't have a lot of the knowledge about prevention and being able to, you know, know to use uh, certain plants as bug repellent and nets. You know, that was a big thing was trying to get nets um, over so that we could um, hand those out at the trainings um, and just promote net use. You could buy them in the cities, but they would be expensive. Huh. Okay. Uh, So, how did that work with uh, engaging with the kind of people you'd been working with your first two years? Uh, were you still doing some of that? Yeah, so that was what I enjoyed about that aspect of the extension within yeah. Peace Corps was still working with um, the the leaders of the villages that would come with the volunteers 
and hear, you know, what their thoughts were and what they had seen being a problem within the health clinics and, um, and what they're hearing in village meetings. So it was, it was really cool. And it, it kind of worked well within the, the work I was doing with RTI was that there was a malaria initiative through USAID that was providing indoor residual spraying. So for five to 10 years, they had been going into the rural areas and spraying down the areas around homes to kill mosquitoes. Mosquitoes would be coming in. Mm And so this would help kill off the mosquitoes. I think it was something similarly done in the U.S. before um, there was more control over the mosquitoes. Um, And, you know, there were issues around the chemicals that were being used. But in the end, it really was showing a difference in the amount of malaria. We would also, while we were in those areas, stop in at the health clinics to be able to get copies of the records to be able to know how many people were um, being diagnosed and treated with malaria. Yeah. Wow. We did not have malaria, amazingly, in Paraguay. It was one of the things that made it a great place to live. But there was a big dengue outbreak while I was there, which is another mosquito-borne disease. And so uh, we got involved in some campaigns to um, go around door to door and help people identify, you know, where's the standing water, those those abandoned tires and pots and things that are just collecting standing water and and helping people eliminate all the habitat for 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 these mosquitoes. Yeah. And I should say, too, that just to be to clear that we were not doing the spraying if they didn't want it. So we would ask first and explain um, what the process was so that they understood. And, of course, there were people that didn't trust it, didn't want it. And that was fine. Well, and it's interesting you, you say that the malaria was overdiagnosed. I mean, I just want to drive home the point to the listeners that malaria continues to be one of the biggest killers in the world. <laughs> and this yeah. is a really, yeah. and not just killers, but, um, you know, it really impacts uh, a, people's ability to function and household income and wealth building and all of that stuff. Uh, so finding solutions for malaria has always mm-hmm. been a huge priority of international development uh, because yeah. of that. So um, um, honor you for doing that work. That's really interesting. Interesting. Yeah. What was it like to switch from uh, being an environment volunteer to sort of more of a health volunteer? Um, You know, there wasn't as much of a difference there as it was going to the village to living in a city. Yeah. Um, Yeah. There was a lot of difference there. Um, And I actually preferred the (laughs) village. I felt like I was more part of the community there. Yeah, I can understand that, too. Oh, one thing I did want to ask you about the village, too, was was a mushroom production project. Tell me about that. Yeah, so this was fun. Um, uh, A couple months after having the failed uh, group of women together with the vegetables, uh, there was a group of ladies that came up to me and wanted assistance with a... um, mushroom growing project which you know you don't really think about yeah was that something that other villages were doing or where did they get this idea it wasn't that common but it had been around it was common enough that peace corps had given within the training materials we got was a set of blueprints 
for growing a, a structure to grow mushrooms in now, that was made for... out of um, like grass and yeah. uh, uh, um, trees Local so that yeah. whenever you added water to the outside of the roof, it added moisture on the inside uh-huh. to grow the mushrooms. Cool. And I am so glad. So this is funny too, along with, um, the language barrier is realizing, even though I had pretty sure I heard in the beginning that they needed a women's group, there was actually a women's group already started. <laughs> um, so with this group, they already had been together, um, you know, for years and they knew each other, they trusted each other cool. and, um, they, they were actually very progressive. I was so impressed all they were already doing and being able to sell in the um the regional town where that was the hub of the area and i think it, they i just wasn't seeing it at the local market yeah i think they were doing some selling through their homes but um they were mostly taking it in where they could get more money in the town um, and through that, like we were talking about with doing some business already, you know, within the village, I was able to work with them and having learned from that first failure, I remembered to just kind of sit back and be a facilitator uh-huh. and help them go through that grant process with Peace Corps to get some funding to be able to build the structure. And then we went with the, the group's president and the treasurer into town, which was a about a 30, 45 minute drive down the mountain. But basically we went a little ways, got to a little bit bigger of a town and got into a van and went on to the the main hub of the area that where they sold a lot more construction materials um, to be able to get and these women took their money serious. You know, they yeah. were making sure to barter yeah. as much as they could. You know, that was something that I grew to really enjoy uh, was the bartering process at the market. And they did such a good job. I just impressed me so much. There was um, a plot of land where they decided to um, to put to build the structure. And they just all got together one day themselves with their, um, what was called a djembe. It was basically like a hoe uh-huh. here. And they cleared that land with also had some um, machetes. Uh, and I have this amazing picture of one woman with a baby strapped yeah, to her back yeah. using a, a machete to clear the land. And I mean, that's, that's, pretty much a depiction of of the women there they are tough and they don't let anything stand in their way that's how it's done awesome well we're nearing the end of our time and i really do want to ask you about your experience after the peace corps and how how it's informed your life afterwards and i I definitely want to ask too you know when you were first applying your family talked you out of it well what do they think about it now yeah, I think they, the second time around, they knew I was serious okay. and they knew I could, you know, was going to stick it through and stay the whole time. And uh, it's funny, I, I took off that time thinking, oh, it's just going to be two years, yeah. this thing I go and do. Um, but then I'll come back and, and get into similar work still, Western Kentucky. But I, 
it just really opened up a whole another world to me and a new understanding of what life is like for other people. Yeah. You know, that we're pretty lucky that just by, I think, kind of sheer luck that we were born here in the U.S., and can go to the the market, the grocery store, and find if it's not COVID times, we can find uh, <laughs> pretty much a big abundance of food. And sure. um, you know, it's a right to vote. It's a right to education. Um, it's it's not that way everywhere. And and that was one of the toughest things for me to see was um, where certain you know children and girls weren't able to afford or get to school you know and it's it's a long walk depending on where they live to where the school is and um it can be it can be difficult but um i also i think one of the takeaways i always tell people is like how happy people were there yeah you know there were these issues but they don't see them as being big issues to be depressed about or anything they have these incredible laughter and smiles about everything that happens. And um, that's always one thing I, I try not to go overboard in saying how hard life was right. or the experience I had, because I don't want it to come across as being they, that they're needy. Um, it was funny. One of the times I shared pictures from the school on Facebook and there was the, like the preschool class um, using the dirt to practice drawing, writing their letters. Yeah. And almost immediately I had like five people wanting to send paper over <laughs> and I'm like, wait, you know, that's actually doesn't work for their system because, and, and I know like, you know, the people that were wanting to help were ser- sincere about wanting to help, but you know, there's not recycling, there's not trash pickup. Exactly. You know? like, it's actually works well doing it in the dirt for They're, their situation. So oh, that's a great um, story. Yeah. You know, it's just always important to remember not everybody has those same needs and expectations that you have. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, okay. Last question for you yeah. is well, what, what, how have you translated that experience into your life now? You went on to get a master's in intercultural service leadership and management, which put you in Haiti for five months, which is fascinating. Uh, and now you do work with refugees too, right? Yeah. Just on a volunteer basis. Yeah. I really try um, as you know, time allows with work and, and other yeah. responsibilities to be able to help out because I do feel this, responsibility now um having experienced this incredible hospitality from the people in tanzania and and haiti and in a couple other places that i need to be able to pay it forward and help the refugees that are coming into this country adjust to their new homes and i feel a real need to be able to advocate on their behalf too for the Americans who don't understand what they were coming from and how hard life must have been to have to flee their country. You know, whenever I say I experienced hospitality, it was because I was going there on my own interest. Um, These people are fleeing their country. So I feel like, you know, on behalf of my respect for the people who I've no, it's just something I have to do. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, I wish we had more time to talk. Peace Corps volunteers always have so many stories to share, <laughs> but this has been a real treat. I've learned a ton about a country I, I really want to get to now, Tanzania. Jessica yeah. Bicey, thanks so much for joining us from Lexington today. Well, thank you. Hopefully we can have a beer after all this craziness and I can learn about Paraguay. That's right. I would love to do that sometime. (laughs) All right. Stay tuned, everyone. Coming up in just a minute, it's your community action calendar here on Forward Radio. Lots of ways to get involved in making sustainability a reality now. So stay tuned. Now I was a child, I walked these hills, drank from the streams, and heard the whippoorwills, and I ran through the fields just as fast as I could, through rocks in the creek, from the deep green woods, climbed up on the mountain, there as fresh as could be. Let my Kentucky soul fly free, fly free, fly free Down from the Ohio to the big sandy And up in the mountain holler down to the big city Gonna let my Kentucky soul fly free Now I'm a man, I live in the big city It's a crazy life Don't bother me It's deep down inside I'm still a country boy You know I gotta get back To where I was born And with the sweet sounds of Apple Latin behind me now, many thanks to them for giving us permission to use their great local music in the podcast versions of our programs, which are on SoundCloud and compiled at forwardradio.org. You can learn more about Apple Latin at appalatin.com. And we encourage you to go to forwardradio.org to become a part of this community radio station. We really built it for you. It's radio for the people by you. And so this is not just a station that you listen to. It's also one you engage with and maybe get your voice behind these microphones. Go to forwardradio.org, click participate today, pitch us a show, either a one-time show or a, a, a weekly program. We'd love to have more local programmers covering all corners of our fair city and all the different diverse communities and perspectives. We want you on our radio. So go to forwardradio.org, click participate. And while you're there, chip in a few bucks to help keep us on the air. Just click on donate and uh, help sustain us throughout the fall to keep this great radio station rolling well get your calendars out and your pencils sharpened to get ready to take action for sustainability this week it all starts on wednesday october 7th at noon when there'll be a great online event hosted by the university of louisville uh, and uh, showing up for racial justice louisville you can't be neutral white anti-racism past and present this special online programs in partnership with U of L, the ann braden institute for social justice Research research louisville showing up for racial justice and the carl braden memorial center from the abolitionists to the civil rights movement to so-called color blindness to today's uprisings a few whites have always joined black and brown people in the struggle for racial justice too often too few marginalized or drowned out by white supremacist voices white anti-racists are increasing in number now in 2020 through this timely and important discussion our panelists will explore what does it 
mean to choose sides in the battle for racial equity historically and today? What kind of culture and values will help white anti-racist spaces and numbers grow? And how is liberation for all of us tied to black liberation? Panelists on Wednesday at noon include Carla Wallace, uh, from the uh, L-Surge co-founder and Fairness Campaign co-founder as well. Shamika Paris-Wright from the Ann Braden Institute Community Council co-chair and director of the Bale Project Louisville. Hannah White, UofL senior history and Spanish major whose research focuses on Southern anti-racist organizing in the 70s. And Dr. Kate Fossil, the current director of the Ann Braden Institute and a historian from the Women's and Gender and Sexuality Studies Department at UofL and author of Subversive Southerner, Ann Braden and the Struggle for Racial Justice in the Cold War South. Find the link to register for Wednesday's noon event at facebook.com slash S-U-R-J Louisville. It's coming up this Wednesday, noon to one. And now let's take a look at Thursday, October 8th, 10.30 a.m. to noon. There's a free event. Kentucky's fifth annual Children's Environmental Health Summit is continuing this Thursday with the speaker, Dr. Luis Chualoy from the University of Colorado on nature for children's health and well-being. It'll be facilitated by Billy Bennett from the Kentucky Environmental Education Council. The Kentucky Department for Public Health, in collaboration with the Kentucky Population Health Institute, is hosting the fifth annual Children's Environmental Health Summit to examine environmental factors that pose a risk to the health and well-being of children throughout Kentucky. During the pandemic, this event is viral and virtual as a series of monthly webinars that continue through December. The target audience can be anyone from educators to policymakers, children, uh, community health workers, state and local public health staff, and anybody else interested, nurses, anyone involved in helping make sure that schools, homes, playgrounds, preschools, and communities are a safe environment for children. The webinars are free and offer continuing education credits and separate registration is required through Eventbrite for each monthly webinar. So again, this coming Thursday, October 8th at 10.30 a.m., it's Nature for Children's Health and Well-Being. Then on the 28th of October, there'll be a webinar on radon, how radon in homes, schools, and daycares affects children. And it wraps up in December with how to take an environmental health history for clinicians. You can learn more and register at uh, the Kentucky Health, uh, the Kentucky Waterways Alliance has it on their events page, kwalliance.org. That's kwalliance.org for Thursday, October 8th, 10.30 a.m., Kentucky's fifth annual Children's Environmental Health Summit continuing. All right, and I also want to remind you that this coming Friday, October 9th, is a very important deadline in our elections. Yes, it's the last date on which you can request a mail-in ballot. So, hey, it makes sense to vote from the safety and security of your home and have time to consider all the many candidates and constitutional amendments that will be on your ballot. You may not even realize what you're voting on. So go to GoVoteKY.com to request your mail-in ballot today. Again, the deadline is this Friday, October 9th at 11.59 p.m. Get your request in before midnight. Now, once you request a mail-in ballot, you cannot vote in person unless something goes wrong and you do not receive your requested ballot by October 28th. And reminder, all mail-in ballots must be postmarked by Election Day, November 3rd, and they must be received 
by November 6th. So you want to, the key is to get all of this done as early as possible and to be really careful when you're filling out those mail-in ballots. Follow every instruction to the T, sign it. You got to sign it twice, the envelope and the ballot. Yeah, yeah, do it right and do it promptly. And Or you could vote in person. Early in-person voting begins Tuesday, October 13th and is available uh, at four locations throughout uh, the county. Uh, so lots of opportunities for you to vote early, uh, and you can learn more at GoVoteKY.com. Also want to let you know, Friday through Sunday, this October 9th to 11th, we're hosting a very special virtual event here in Louisville. It's the Grassroots Radio Conference holding a virtual summit this year, and it's hosted by our local sister station, RFM WXOX. Since 1996, the Grassroots Radio Conference has brought together community-minded radio stations to share ideas, technology, and conversation. Each year, the event is hosted by a station in a different part of the country, and 2020 was to be RFM's opportunity to host the conference in person right here in Louisville. However, due to the pandemic, for the first time ever, RFM will be bringing community stations from around the world together online for a virtual summit this Friday through Sunday. Uh, every day it goes from 11 a.m. to 6.15 p.m. with some evening events as well. Grassroots stations are more important than ever to a global listenership in distress in so many ways. Don't miss this important opportunity to come together to share ideas, exchange information, and build connections within our radio community. So mark your calendars for October 9th to 11th as we unite for three days of online talks, workshops, and networking activities focusing on today's most pressing issues in radio. This year's conference will focus on the following topics. We'll be talking about the pandemic and how to broadcast safely and responsibly, the protests, how to amplify justice and equality for all, the president energizing the electorate through the FM dial, and we'll also be covering hyper-local news reporting during wildfires and other disasters. The deadline for discounted early bird registration rates is coming up on October 6th, and there is a discounted rate for all three days if you do it by then, or you can just register for one day. You can learn more and register at virtualgrc.org. That's the Grassroots Radio Conference, virtualgrc.org, coming up, hosted by our friends at Art FM, WXOX, this October 9th through 11th. Uh, every day it's 11 a.m. to 6, 15 p.m. Now, coming up on Saturday the 10th, it's UofL's last pollinator garden workday from 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. at the Corfidge Native Plant Garden that's just west of Life Sciences. The UofL Botanical Society invites you to join us for a workday at the pollinator garden next to Life Sciences. It's in need of some love, and we'll be following all pandemic guidelines as outlined by UofL and the CDC. Masks will be required. If you do not have one, one will be provided for you. Physical distancing is also required, so please bring one water and gardening gloves and they recommend a hat light snack and long pants as well they will not have work days if it's raining or less than 40 degrees or otherwise hazardous out but you can come on out this saturday the 10th from 8 to 10 a.m just west of life sciences on uofl's main belknap campus you can learn more at louisville.edu sustainability 
Also this Saturday the 10th, it's 100 miles for Brianna Taylor bike ride number two from 8.15 a.m. to 5 p.m. It's the second ride honoring Brianna Taylor and bringing awareness to our desire for racial justice for her and her family. It's a 100-mile ride right here in the urban core of Louisville, sponsored by Louisville, Kentucky Cyclists Supporting Racial Justice. There'll be four 25-mile routes that begin and end at headquarters in Justice Square at 6th and Jefferson, beginning at 8.15 a.m. and continuing throughout the afternoon. Riders may participate in any of the 20 25-mile rides you wish, with the possibility of accumulating 100 miles for the day on relatively flat roads in our city. If you've never completed a 1-mile or a 100-mile bicycle ride, well, now is a good time for a good cause with a good group of people to help you do just that. We'll have the schedule for each of the 25-mile rides, and they will be led and swept so no one gets left behind. Wear your Black Lives Matter shirts, bring signs, noisemakers, say her name really loud. On Southern Parkway, Northwestern Parkway, Algonquin Parkway, Eastern Parkway, and Cherokee Parkway. From Muhammad Ali's boyhood home on Grand Street to the tallest mansions on Cherokee Road. We will be there and we will say her name. Learn more at Facebook.com. Just search for 100 Miles for Brianna Taylor, number two. And that's this Saturday, October 10th, starting at 8.15 a.m. at 6 in Jefferson. Now, though, if that sounds like a little too uh, much riding for you, you can also just come to the Seasoned Revolutionaries Sit-In for Justice, also on Saturday the 10th from 3 to 5 p.m. at Injustice Square at 6 in Jefferson. You'll be able to welcome in that last group of riders at the end of the day. Our veteran activists have been a fundamental source of learning, inspiration, and leadership in this uprising, and many of them have been involved in the anti-racist justice struggles for decades. Join in if you self-identify or if you just want to come honor our justice veterans and learn from them. Cookies and lemonade will be served. Please respect that our elders are even more vulnerable to COVID-19, so wear your mask and keep your distance. Also, in honor of Mother Earth, please bring your own reusable water bottles. This is co-sponsored by the Kentucky Alliance uh, and El Surge, and you can learn more at facebook.com slash injustice square. And finally, I want to give you a little heads up that now is the time to register and fundraise for the annual Louisville Earth Walk. It's going citywide this year out of respect for everyone's safety during the pandemic. So while we will not gather together in one place at one time on Saturday, October 24th, everyone is invited to participate from everywhere. This year, there are two exciting registration options. You can take a 5K walk wherever you want or go freeform and celebrate however you like from wherever you are at any time on the 24th. Simply go to louisvilleearthwalk.org to register, make a donation, form a team, or become a fundraiser. Once you set up a fundraising page, you can share it with friends, family, and neighbors via email, text, or on social media. Whether you walk, donate, fundraise, or all three, we're excited to have you as part of the 2020 Citywide Louisville Earth Walk on October 24th. Gifts to Louisville Earth Walk directly support 11 different community-based organizations that share a vision for every neighborhood with safe and clean water, air, and soil. Collectively, we work for a comprehensive change that involves personal actions, effective policies, and the quest for environmental justice. We build skills 
incubate new ideas, raise awareness, reduce energy consumption, plant trees, and engage citizens in responses to the climate crisis. The Earthwalk benefits the West Jefferson County Community Task Force, Project Warm, Passionist Earth and Spirit Center, Louisville Sustainability Council, Louisville Grows, Louisville Climate Action Network, Kentucky Interfaith Power and Light, Kentucky Conservation Committee, KFTC, Greater Louisville Sierra Club, and Cultivating Connections. You can learn more and register now and begin fundraising at louisvilleearthwalk.org. And that's all the time we have for today here on Sustainability Now. Stay tuned. Lots of great stuff coming up in your ears here on Forward Radio. And I'll be back again in one week's time. Be well. Stay safe, everyone. Do you remember the t-